So we're going to pick right up in Daniel chapter 8. That's where we are right now. Daniel chapter 8 says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. You guys all know where that is, right? Okay. <laughs> Well, here's what's happening here. We're going to go back in time a little bit to the Babylonian reign. Because remember, we're studying all the history of the prophecies that happened. So we're back in the Babylonian reign under King Belshazzar, which was the writing on the wall king. In 551 BC, Daniel recalls he had a vision during that time. He was in Susa, about 230 miles east of Babylon, and he was standing on the bank of the Uli Canal, which is in between two rivers, a canal that connects two rivers. So literally, in this vision, he's standing. It's kind of like a, uh, like a sci-fi movie. He's literally standing in another place. He's like kind of like transported to another place in a sense. So basically, the vision was so vivid. Now, before I get into the vision, what I want to do is I want to recap what's kind of already happened. And this is so important because we're going to recap a little bit from chapter 2 and a little bit from chapter 7 because chapter 8 also repeats this. Now, one thing you've probably learned in life from your parents is when they can keep repeating things, it usually means what? It's important, okay? You haven't listened and it's important. So your parents will keep repeating things, repeating things, repeating things. Well, the book of Daniel is actually no different. God is, continues to repeat things to kind of drill it into our heads, basically what's going on. So let me give you just a brief recap. Remember those first four kingdoms, Babylon, Medes and Persians, Greece, and Rome one, and the statue vision in chapter two, and the beast vision in chapter seven. So this chapter 8 actually just focuses in on the two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians, and Greece. So you'll see there in that first column, the chapter 2, and then in the chapter 7. So what we're about to read, I'm going to read 12 verses, which is kind of a lot to read out loud like that, but I'm going to do it. And uh, it's, it's chapter 8. It deals with the ram and the goat vision. Now, when you hear me reading this, Kind of remember, the Medes and the Persians, they were the chest and arms of silver and the lopsided bear. Remember the lopsided bear because the Persians were a little stronger than the Medes. And then Greece was the bronze belly and thighs and the leopard with four heads and wings. That was under Alexander the Great and then the kingdom being separated between four of his generals. So basically what's going to happen here is we're going to see a ram with two horns and then later on it's going to have four and it just, it won't get confusing, okay? Trust me. And then the goat, well, no, actually the goat had four horns, excuse me. The goat with one great horn, I'm confusing myself up here. Um, <laughs> the goat had one great horn, then four horns, and then a little horn. So basically what we're going to do is we're going to go through the next 12 verses, then we're going to look at the interpretation connect all the dots, and then we're going to learn four lessons of applying it to our own personal Christian lives here today in 2022. So let's start with the vision. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. Remember, the Persians were stronger, and the, one, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. 
No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. A couple of things I want to point out here. The four winds of heaven represent the Jewish people, and then the glorious land represents the holy land. So then it goes on. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and to some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Remember, the Jewish people were, were abundant as the stars of the sky, the promise to Abraham. It became great even as... Even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Oh. And a host will be given over together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will be thrown it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate, the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now this all makes sense, right? Perfect sense. Okay, so here's the thing. We have this vision, but praise the Lord, the good news is, is we don't have to try to figure it out because it gets interpreted for us, and then we can learn from the interpretation. So let's look and see how it's interpreted. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, just like you and I. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So here we have an appearance of Gabriel. Remember Gabriel? Around Christmas time you do. Okay, he's the one who gave the message to Mary that she was to be with child and that child would be the savior of the world. So Gabriel is an angel, a messenger. The voice was God saying, hey, Gabriel, go tell Daniel what's going on. So in verse 17, it picks up and says, So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep. 
with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. So now Gabriel states that the vision Daniel saw is for things to come. And an aspect of the vision was going to point to the time of the end. We're going to fill more details in as we go along, but notice what happens. It says Daniel fell asleep. Now, do you think he fell asleep out of boredom? He's like, "Ah, I'm really not interested in this. Hopefully you're not doing that. But here's what happened. He passed out. Okay, he, he was so overwhelmed, he actually passed out. So Gabriel came up, touched him, and he came too. So now in verse 19, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time at the end. So now this is the first thing we have to deal with. What is the latter end of the indignation? It sounds like an event, right? When you read it like that, it sounds like an event. Well, the truth is, it is an event. Now, indignation actually means anger or annoyance provoked by unfair treatment. Have you ever felt that way? Okay. Angry or annoyed because somebody treated you unfairly? Well, the theologian Reynolds Schauer says it this way. He says, a study of the term indignation through the scriptures reveals that the indignation refers to a period of history in which God is indignant or angry with Israel, the Jewish people, because of their rebellion against him. It is a time in which God disciplines them by the hands of Gentile nations, so non-Jewish nations. This happened in Isaiah 10 when Israel was cruelly treated and conquered by the Assyrians and Israel's captivity in Babylon, which we started this whole thing off, right? We started Daniel off with Israel's captivity in Babylon. And Lamentations 2 and Zechariah 1 talk about that. So God is being unfairly treated by his chosen people. And what happens is his indignation or anger and annoyance leaves them vulnerable to sinful people and what this sinful world deals out. That's the Gentile nations. So all these things that we've been studying, how Babylon falls to Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia falls to Greece, and Greece falls to Rome, in the mix, you have Jewish people, and they have no protection, and their land is being sieged, and basically what's happening is Things are happening to them, and God is not protecting them at this point. This will continue on to the tribulation period. Now, that does not mean that all Jewish people will suffer at the hands of Gentile nations, because many Jewish people have believed in Jesus, do believe in Jesus, and will believe in Jesus. But the majority of the Jewish people, and you and I know this today, reject Jesus. And they reject him so much so, to illustrate their rebellion is so strong, Jewish people that trust in Jesus are oftentimes disowned by their own families. Some of you might remember one of our missionaries, Larry Stam, who came here to speak. He's a Jewish Christian that ministers to people, and his dad is a practicing Jewish man who has disowned him. He will not talk to him because he trusted in Jesus. So the rebellion is pretty strong. So this vision is Daniel showing, is, is showing Daniel, a Jewish man, what the result of rebellion against God will be because they forfeit his protection. Gentile nations are going to rise up and Israel will get caught up in the mix and suffer. 
So now, Gabriel, what he does is we see some already prophecies. Now, when I say already prophecies, these are already for us. So now we can historically look back and say, yep, that happened. They conquered them. They conquered them. They conquered them. That stuff all happened. But do you know for Daniel, these were like not yet. Hey, Daniel was seeing these visions and they hadn't happened yet. And some wouldn't happen for 400 years. So Daniel wouldn't even see those things in his lifetime. But the first one is about 12 years away from when Daniel actually saw the vision. So it says this. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So back in verse 3 and 4, the two horns, one was higher, the Persians were stronger than the Medes. In the beast vision, this was the lopsided bear. and the statue vision, it was the chest and the arms of silver. So Daniel sees that this is what's going to happen. And guess what? Historically, now we can study and look back and realize it did happen. So now we move on and it says this. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So now this is Greece. The horn between his eyes is Alexander the Great. Some of you studied that in school, Alexander the Great. Do you know how old Alexander was, was when he started his reign of terror? Anybody know? He's 22 years old. He was a military genius, 22 years old. Do you know any 22-year-olds? Can they pull that off? <laughs> he died at 32, they say, of some type of disease. Historians are not in agreement of what the disease was. But he died not by somebody conquering him. He died of a disease. Four generals uh, rose up, and the kingdom was split up. Not, but not with his power. So basically now the kingdom of Greece was not as powerful as it was under Alexander. It was kind of split up into four. And then these four horns rose up. So let's see what happens next. At the latter end of the kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Now we have to break this down because there's a little horn here that rises up. And does anybody remember last week in chapter seven? Please tell me you do, okay? And there was a little horn. Does anybody remember who that little horn was? Antichrist, good, yay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I know, this can be confusing, right? So that horn was the Antichrist. Guess what? This one's not. <laughs> not to confuse you a little more. So basically, historically, we can study out of the Seleucid division, the four kingdoms that rose up after Alexander, another king rose up. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He rises up, the scriptures say, when the transgressors have reached their limit. What in the world does that mean? Well, we know transgressor means sin. So most theologians agree this is a reference to the sins 
and the rebellion of the Jewish people because during, the time, during that time, the Jews and the Greeks were bringing pagan Greek culture to Jerusalem and Israel and getting involved in sinful activities. They were mocking the laws of God and they got involved in worship of Greek gods. So basically, God's chosen people were actually making a mockery of God. They were making a mockery of God, getting involved in that culture, worshiping gods in that culture. Remember, this is the latter end of the indignation. So God is angry and annoyed right now with his people at this point because their rebellion is continuing. So now what happens, he allows them to suffer under the rule of a terrible king. And his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. I'm going to read the next few verses. Then what I'm going to do is we're going to learn a little bit about that historical figure, Antiochus Epiphanes. And then, I hope this doesn't confuse you, we're going to look and see how he is a type or a prefiguration of the Antichrist. So he foreshadows. His life is a type of the Antichrist. Now, if you don't know what a type is, some of you might remember, I've taught this before, there's certain people in the scriptures that are types of Christ. They point to Christ. One of the very famous was, remember when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac? Isaac is known as a type of Christ. Abraham is a type of God the Father. Isaac was a type of Christ. So let's go on and find out more about Antiochus Epiphanes. It says, By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. So let's look at Antiochus Epiphanes. The first thing is we learn he's powerful. But it says in the scripture, he's powerful, but not by his own. Now this is a reference to some sort of demonic influence and it manifests itself in evil. Now, most of you realize that there's a spiritual world. If you're here in church today, you're willing to admit there is a spiritual world because you would not come in and face forward and listen to this stuff if you weren't willing to admit that, right? So we're all on that same page. There is a spiritual world. In that spiritual world, there's good, who is God, and there's evil, who is Satan. Well, do you realize this? Anytime evil happens, there's a spiritual thing going on. Okay, it's demonic. It's from the devil. It's a spiritual thing going on. Antiochus Epiphanes, his power was not his own. It was actually a power pretty much from demonic influence. When we think of today, a great example of demonic influence in power is Putin. Okay, there is no way that you could say that is human, just human driven. Someone like Hitler, any powerful leader that is really pure evil, is pretty much gets their power from Satan. I'm not saying that they go worship Satan. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is the power comes from spiritual darkness. The second thing is this. Antiochus Epiphanes was destructive. He waged war on God's people. It says the stars and the hosts and the glorious land. He persecuted them. He had many military conquests. Next is 
He was against God. He actually set himself up as God and forced people to worship him. Some of you might know atheists, right? There is no God. This guy was like, I am the God. Do you want to know how we know this? They found these coins, okay? The coin of Antiochus. You can't read the bottom, but I'll read it. It's the coin of Antiochus. The arrow on the left-hand side of the left coin points to the phrase, Theos Epiphanes, declaring the God manifest. Do you know how we have our money? It says, in God we trust. Well, Antiochus made his own coins, and he's like, in me I trust. Okay, I am God. You will worship me. That's what he did. This is all historical. This is, I mean, they found all this stuff. This is not just biblical. This is historical things that people have found. But then he will be taken down by God. He was not conquered by a human kingdom. He actually died of some sort of condition. And finally, he has a limited time. Remember that 2,300 mornings and evenings? Those things, like when you hear those things, you're like, oh, whatever. Okay, well, this, this is actually a, a real time period, and Antiochus Epiphanes actually ruled for just over six years. Now, when I read this stuff, when I study this stuff, I'm just like, dang, like this is amazing. So this was given to Daniel, and then it's pieced together through history that happens after Daniel's vision. So this is a historical account of Antiochus Epiphanes that happened already, but he and his life foreshadows the coming of the Antichrist and what the Antichrist will do during the tribulation period. We're just going to go over that very briefly. We talked about it a little bit last week. We're going to get back to it after Easter, but this is what happens with the Antichrist. The Antichrist is obviously powerful. He's powerful, and he's a world leader. Hey, remember, there was that, that, that 10 king confederation, and then he rises up, and he kind of rules through those 10 kings. Then we learn he's destructive. He will destroy halfway through the tribulation period is when you'll really see the destruction of the Antichrist. He's against God. Eventually, what happens three and a half years into the tribulation, he winds up setting himself up as a god to be worshipped. Then he is taken down by God. No human hand takes the Antichrist down. Remember the statue vision? The rock comes and smashes the statue. Remember in the beast vision, the kingdom of the Son of Man comes? He's taken down by God. It's not by any human power. And then finally, it's a limited time. That time's up. That's seven years of tribulation. So we learn from this passage, there was a historical figure named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he is a type of what we will see in the end, or we won't see because we'll be raptured, which will be good. Okay, so here is where the labor comes in. What are the lessons we learned? Because now I just like firehosed you with all this information. Those of you that are not in history, I've lost already. Those of you that love this stuff, you're like, yeah, keep going. Okay, here's the thing. We need some lessons. How do we apply this to our lives? So we're going to learn some lessons. The first lesson is sin has consequences. Remember the time of indignation that I talked about? God is angry or displeased with sin. He's annoyed with sin. Do you know the rejection of Jesus? When we reject Jesus, God the Father actually gives us what we're rejecting him for. 
Let me say that again. When we reject Jesus, I'm talking if you don't believe in Jesus yet. When you reject Jesus, God will give you what you're rejecting Jesus for. Meaning when we reject him, we are accepting something else and with something else comes consequences. The question I have to ask you is this. What is the something else? If you don't trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for your sins, that three days later rose again to prove that he is God, what are, what's holding you up? What's in the way of you saying this is true? Now, some of you might be like, my intellect, I, I, can't, I can't trust in that. Hey, some of you might say, my sin, I don't feel like living that way. I don't want, like, I, I see Christians and, and they do things that, like, I don't really want to do. So whatever it is, you have to ask yourself this question. What is the something else in your life? But let me just tell you this. There's a point here. When we get what we want, a lot of times it ends in consequences. Romans chapter 1 talks about how God has this passive wrath, and he allows people in some cases to pursue sinful ways because they're so rebellious and they won't listen to him. When they pursue those ways, they learn that God is right and they were wrong. This really describes most people who don't know Jesus. They, they start to realize I've been living my life for something that's not helpful for me, that's not beneficial, that gives me no purpose. The truth is, when we pursue things like that, there's consequences. Now, let me just share a passage with you. I messed this slideshow up. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go forward one. Where did that go? There it is. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. What this is telling us is this. Do you realize when you sin, you are pursuing something that will come with consequences? But sometimes, even as believers, we can get off track, can't we? We can get off track because we know that when we don't trust in Christ, there's consequences to that. That's the eternal separation from God. But as a believer, we know we can also sin. You realize that, right? We also struggle with sin. We can do things wrong, and there's consequences to those things. So let me back up here for a second. Pride leads to destruction. Lesson number two is pride leads to destruction. Now, here we studied a leader that's obviously an egomaniac, someone filled with pride, has power, abuses that power, and harms others because he can. The pride destroyed people and things, and ultimately, he was destroyed by his own pride. God took him out because of his own pride. Well, the question I have for you is, what about you? Are you prideful? Most of us would say, no, I'm not prideful. I'm not prideful. But then we have to ask ourselves a few questions. By the way I live, is the root of pride really in me? Well, what do I mean by that? Well, you may be prideful, not in the normal sense that we would accuse somebody of being prideful, but 
If you ask yourself these few questions, you might actually have the root of pride going on in your life. So let me ask you a few questions, or you asked yourself these few questions. The last time you made a decision, did you pray and ask Jesus for guidance? Last time you made a medium decision, I'm not talking about like, should you stop a Wawa and get a cup of coffee? I'm talking about like, like some like medium-sized decisions. Did you spend time like, Lord, what do you want me to do here? Or did you just look at it and say, well, that makes sense, that doesn't make sense, or this makes sense? Or, or did you like spend time asking for guidance? The last time you spent money, did you pray about the expenditure? You know, sometimes we just spend money because we have it. Why'd you spend that? Oh, I had it, okay? I just, I, I wanted that, I had it, so I spent it. Well, just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? So then, how do you know if you should? Well, I, I got a guy, okay? <laughs> you ask Jesus, should I do this? Is this something that I should pursue? Next question is, last time you had a conflict with someone, did you pray about how to handle it? Or did you just take matters into your own hands? Did you pray about it? Did you ask God, how am I supposed to handle this? Which brings us to the next lesson, and that is, be careful who you follow. Now, Israel at the time of Antiochus was following the pagan culture. They paid for it. They paid for following after the pagan culture. Are you following the world? Now, if you are too into following a leader or a political party, you better be careful. And I'm just saying either side. I don't care what you like people, but, but this one, but this one, but this. either side. If you're too into a leader or a political party, you're going to have a problem eventually. Because here's the temptation. It's to follow the people that say what you want to hear and do what you think they should. You say that again. Follow the people that say what you want to hear and do what you think they should. You have to step back and realize at some point, leaders can be very corrupt, and sometimes they say what you want to hear and do the things that you think they should so they can keep their jobs. They look at you and say, how am I going to puppeteer these people? And they do it to Christians all the time. Oh, the Christians want to hear this, so we'll say this, and then they'll get our vote. And then they don't deliver. So think clearly about who you follow. My suggestion is you should really only follow Jesus because he is the one that saves us. Now, do you realize during the tribulation something interesting happens? We're going to talk about this in two weeks. The Jewish people will face this time of indignation at that point because they rejected Jesus. They actually go through the tribulation, the people that have not believed in Christ yet, will go through the tribulation. They do something interesting. They sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist. And that peace treaty allows them to have protection to get their land and rebuild the temple and institute sacrificial worship. Think about that for a second. It sounds very holy, doesn't it? It sounds like a good spiritual move for the Jewish people. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that God is pleased with that? You look at me like it's a trick question. <laughs> it shouldn't be. 
Do you know who died on a cross as the once for all sacrifice? This is like the ultimate reaching out and slapping God in the face. We don't need that Messiah. We do our own sacrifice. It sounds like they're trying to please God and follow him, but the truth is they're full of rejection against him. Reinstitution of the temple sacrifice and, the, and worship of God in that way is a slap in the face to Christ who died as the ultimate sacrifice. The problem, they sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist. They follow the wrong, the Antichrist. Remember, he's Antichrist. They follow the wrong leader. Now, finally, our last lesson comes from the last verse in the chapter. We're going to have to skip to there. It says this, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And some of you might feel the exact same way right now. You're like, But really, when we point to this, we see the last and final lesson that we need to take away from this. And that is, take care of the king's business. The king in view in this passage was Belshazzar, and Daniel was being a good citizen of the kingdom. He was being a good citizen of the kingdom. And he was saying, you know what? I saw all this. I'm a little sick from it. It doesn't make perfect sense to me. I'm not 100% sure what to do at this point. But I do know this. I need to take care of the business that I was called to. So what does that mean for us today? We know the already passages. Now we know the not yet passages. Obviously, God is drilling it into our heads by spending all these chapters on this prophecy. But the truth is, we need to get and take care of the king's business. You know, today is Palm Sunday. The significance of this day is Jesus the king entered Jerusalem. You remember what he did? He conquered everybody, right? No. What did he do? He stretched out his arms and saved us. His business was to come and save. When the people were saying, Hosanna, they were saying, oh, save the Savior. They thought the Savior was knocking over Rome. They thought the Savior was conquering. And that will happen. Remember that rock that smashes the statue? That will eventually happen. But when Jesus came, his business, the business of the king, which he called himself, was to save the people. You know, we have a great opportunity coming this coming week. Good Friday, Easter Sunday, for us to really be a light. For you to invite your friends and family members to church. I promise we're not going to talk about the Antichrist, okay? <laughs> My promise to you is we're going to talk about Jesus and what he's done for us and how he saved us. We need to be about the king's business and get the message out to the community. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. We know these are tough scriptures and they make us ask even more questions oftentimes. But Lord, the bottom line is you have business for us to take care of. And that's to tell people about the love that you have for each one of us. And we're willing to pay the price for our sins when you died on that cross. 
and rose from the grave, and we're thankful for that. And we just pray this week as we contemplate those things, as we spend time on Good Friday, learning about why the cross had to happen, learning about on Easter Sunday why the resurrection is so important to our lives. I just pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, but also open the hearts of those that we know that don't know you yet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.